Trojans, welcome back. Today we're going to have lecture four on Achilleus and before the Trojan War. Achilleus, and you see his Greek name there, was the son of Peleus and the Nereid Thetis. Originally, his name supposedly was Ligeron, clear-voiced, um, and his name was, was eventually changed to Achilleus later on. I have a slide on that, which I'll tell you about. That said, I just want you to recall that it was a very odd marriage between Peleus and Thetis. I've mentioned this before. Peleus, as you know, was a mortal man. He was one of the Argonauts. He traveled with Jason and with Heracles in order uh, to Colchis to get the Golden Fleece. Uh, what was odd about Peleus and his marriage to Thetis is that Thetis is a Nereid. That means a minor sea nymph, a minor sea goddess. And again, it's very odd for a mortal man to marry an immortal goddess. There seems to be something... Um, uh, uh, there, there's an imbalance of the power relationship. When, in the ancient Greek society, the idea was that when one married, the man was supposed to be in charge. But there's also a relationship between man and God, where if there is a God and there's a man, the man should worship the God. So there's an inverse power relationship there. So in a marriage between a God and a man, and with the God as a woman, who's supposed to be in charge? The man as husband or the goddess as God? There's sort of a tricky question there, and it, it really doesn't end up working out very well with Peleus and Thetis, uh, which I will talk about very soon. So there was tension from the beginning, and um, does anybody recall why it was in the first place that Thetis was married to a mortal man rather than to a god, even though there were gods that thought she was rather attractive, Poseidon and Zeus in particular? Yes? Um, because whoever she married... Um Correct. There was a prophecy that whomever she married, his son would be greater than the father, would be greater than himself. And so with humans, we're totally okay with that. The idea is that if you are a father, you hope that your sons and children will be greater than you are. But with the gods, knowing Zeus and his history, knowing that Zeus had actually supplanted his father by defeating him, uh, through trickery, essentially, and that Zeus's father, Kronos, had defeated his father to become king, Uranos, Zeus probably can see the future and is like, hmm, if I have a son who is greater than I am, probably he will supplant me, he will become king of the gods, and that is not something that I would like to happen. And so, Thetis gets married off to Peleus, and then she has a very great son who is greater than his father, and that is Achilleus. All right. couple incredible things about Achilleus. Uh, in sort of typical hero arc, um, he has a weird childhood and has some odd things happen to him. This is the mythology behind him. Now, it is not necessarily the case that Homer accepts this mythology about him. It is also not necessarily the case that all of this mythology was clear and coherent during the time of Homer. But these are a couple of the accounts that we know about Achilleus. One special thing about him that you've probably heard, and um, there that we have an expression based on the Achilles heel, is that he was invulnerable. That means invincible, except for on his heel. The idea being that he was nearly invulnerable. Well, there's an even deeper idea behind that, which is even if you were as close to being invulnerable, that means unable to be wounded as a human possible, can you still be wounded and die? And the answer is obviously what? Yes. Of course, that's the whole point of being a mortal. In fact, the word for death is in the word mortal. 
Immortal means not dying. And in fact, in ancient Greek, the word for death, thanatoi, we were called the dying ones, and the, the, uh, the gods were called the athanatoi, the undying ones. And so, you might see Achilleus already for sort of a symbol in that respect, that even if you are a son of a god, even if you are the most handsome, the tallest, the fastest, the most gifted human ever, you still die. And, well, I think that's supposed to teach us something about life. In any case, let's talk about these two differing stories for how he became nearly invulnerable. So, the one account, Thetis, she is a goddess. She has a mortal son. She doesn't ever want him to die, so she tries to fight against nature and fate. And so, supposedly, she anoints Achilleus and Ambrosia. To anoint somebody means to put, uh, it's like to put perfume on them, to put some sort of oil on them. It either cleans them or makes them smell better. And ambrosia was supposedly the food of the gods. If you could drink nectar and eat ambrosia, you could become immortal. There are a couple of humans, contrary to what I just said, in the mythology of the Greeks who do become gods. Heracles is the most famous of them. There's also one named Glaucus, who's a much more minor god, and uh, potentially a couple others that aren't coming to my mind. In any case, Achilleus has this immortal ambrosia put on him, and Thetis puts him into a fire. And the idea is that she is burning his mortal parts away. In fact, there's actually uh, literally what Heracles does to become a god. At the end of his life, he's been poisoned by either hydra blood or the blood of a centaur named Nessus. And he's, he's being eaten uh, basically outside in by this poison. And he climbs a mountain. And then he builds his own funeral pyre. And he jumps on it. And then his mortal parts burn away. And essentially, the idea is that his soul jumps up to Olympus. Well, it looks like Thetis wanted that for her son, except for while she is burning away the mortal parts of him, she's interrupted by Peleus, her mortal husband, walking in on her. Now, I just want you to imagine that you are a dad, and you walk into your infant's room, and the mother, your wife, is holding him, dangling him inside of a fire. <laughs> Now, we all know that this is obviously a very funny, weird, mythological story, and mythological stories are often known for being rather bizarre, but what do you think your reaction might be upon seeing that? Your facial reaction? Maybe you can just look at me and show me, yeah, that's a pretty good face. Yeah, gasp with horror? Is that a good face? Like, what are you doing? Do you think you might yell out like that? Yeah, of course, and that's something that Peleus does. He's like, what, uh, what are you doing? But in yelling like that, in reacting in that way, the difference between Peleus and Thetis is exacerbated, is enlarged. Because what does he show in reacting negatively to seeing Thetis putting his son in the fire? He shows that he doesn't understand her at all, that the gulf between them is insuperable, that the relationship that they had will never work. And in fact, supposedly right after this, she actually jumps out the window into the sea and never comes back to her. I know. I know. These, these goddesses and gods of the Olympians and uh, the Greek mythology and the Greco-Roman really mythology, they're very fickle, people will say. They'll turn from you on a dime. And uh, Peleus does see her one more time when he's on the Argo, and she just has one thing to say to him, and then she's gone again forever. So, rather sad. Rather sad story. In any case, the reason why... or. Why I tell you about Peleus coming in, besides the fact that it's very sad that he's left by Thetis right after this, is because Thetis is interrupted, 
and she was holding Achilleus by the heels. She never puts his heels into the fire, and so one part of him is vulnerable, and of course, at some point, he will be struck in that part, and then he, like all mortals, except for Heracles, apparently, will die. All right, second account. In the Greek mythology, there is a very famous river called the River Styx. In fact, we will see, uh, we'll see it mentioned here in Greek mythology. We'll actually see it transcripted, transcribed, rather, uh, into the Aeneid in Book 6. We'll have to cross it with uh, a Sibyl and Charon, the ferryman of the dead. And in fact, you'll even see it uh, next year in the medieval Catholic tradition in Dante's The Divine Comedy. It's a very famous river. In fact, there's even a rock band from the 20th century called Styx, interestingly enough. Two things about this river. One, it is the river that connects the world of the living to the world of the dead. A ferryman actually takes souls across it. He is, uh, his class of job is called a psychopomp. That means a sender of souls. Hmm. But this river is even more famous potentially. Mm, I wouldn't say more famous. There is a second attribute of this river that is very famous as well. When the Olympian gods, who have almost unbounded power, though not quite, they are not omnipotent, they are checked by each other and by certain limitations of fate and nature, when an Olympian god wants to make an oath, is one of the twelve main gods, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Hestia, um, etc., uh, Dionysus, Hermes, uh, few more, Ares, Aphrodite, um, when they want to make an oath, they swear on the river Styx. And if they break the oath to the river Styx, which is their holiest oath, and you'll actually see Hera make an oath on that in the Iliad, as well as on the earth and the sky and the head of Zeus, which is sort of ironic and funny. We'll find that funny at that time. Um, if a god breaks that oath, they have to stay immobile for an entire year. It's like being put it's like having time out in a corner, staring in the corner for a year. And something you might want to know about the gods is they move as fast as thought. So movement is life for them. So imagine being able to move as fast as thought, how fast you would be able to think based on that, and then how long a year stationary would seem to you. It's terrifying. Terrifying. Question? Uh, is there another... That's an interesting idea. The question was, if one breaks an oath on the river Styx, will the fates come torment you? I think you mean the Furies come torment you? In general, the Furies are the most terrifying super creatures, horror creatures, like super its, that exist in Greek mythology. When they come is generally when you spill the blood of a family member. So, a brother, a mo mother... A father dies, something like that. That's when the Furies generally come. Very famously, we get to see the Furies in a trilogy of Greek drama called the Oresteia, which focuses on Orestes, who is the son of Agamemnon, who has to kill one of his family members, who might have killed Agamemnon. We'll talk about that soon. In any case, in this account, Styx, Thetis essentially does the same thing as she does in the fire. And I think it's very interesting that one account has fire, one has water. In fact, uh, water and fire both do have purifying ideas in uh, Western, Western mythology, whether it be Greco-Roman or Christian. In fact, 
uh, you know, that the baptism idea is an idea of drowning oneself in order to be reborn. And in fact, you do literally purify yourself with water by bathing yourself with water. It cleans you up. But fire does the same sort of thing. You often burn things to clean them. Um, and in fact, there have been some terrible, terrible, terrible atrocities done with fire in the name of purity as well. One, of course, being the Salem Witch Trials, which would often result not only in drowning witches, but also burning them. And then, of course, also mo most terribly, um, um, the, the Holocaust. And in fact, the word Holocaust does come from to burn something entire in Greek. And so those two ideas uh, of fire and water being uh, united with purity and being able to be used for good or evil are very strong ideas that uh, pervade our culture and have pervaded our culture for now almost 3,000 years. And so, in any case, the Styx is a river in the underworld. Thetis supposedly held her son above the water by his feet. Well, what's the problem with doing that? Most of them's invulnerable, but what's not going to be? Yes? The heels. The heels. And again, we see the heels. Again, we see, no matter what you try to do as a person, if you're a person, a human, a mortal, will you die at some point? And, I mean, I think that this story indicates a great um, uh, uncomfortableness that we have. What is it that most humans want to not think about during the course of their lives? What is it that we don't want to face? What is it that causes us tremendous fear and uncertainty and that we all are uncertain about and uh, will all have to face at some point? Death. Exactly. Exactly. Even the greatest human you can imagine. And you might imagine that Achilles is the greatest human that you can imagine. You'll find some flaws in him, I have no doubt. But he is known to be rather perfect looking. He's very tall, very handsome, very strong, and very much a prince and the son of a goddess. So he's got a lot going for him. And yet, even he will pass. Yes? That's a great question. I think, I don't know, so with mythology, there are always little things you might be able to nitpick. But the reason that she doesn't dip her hands in seems to be that for some reason that would be some violation that she's not allowed to commit. And so she, as a goddess, is essentially invulnerable. We will see the gods can be harmed, but then they can be healed very quickly and they can't die. But um, it's unclear what would happen to her. But I think that's something sort of fun to think about. All right. Now, Achilles, after his mother departed from him, his father in the mythology sends him to a centaur. A centaur named Chiron. A centaur who is uh, renowned, he's supposedly immortal, and is renowned for his ability to train heroes. And so what is it that he trains Achilles to do? Well, he trains him in everything, really. He trains him, teaches him to hunt, teaches him to fight, teaches him to kill, teaches him how to speak and to conduct himself in assembly, to use um, speechcraft. He teaches him also how to play the lyre and how to tend to wounds. In fact, Achilles and his best friend Patroclus, who is a little bit older than he is, will be uh, two uh, talented he uh, wound healers. In fact, we'll see Patroclus tend to the wound of a wounded Achaean during the course of the Iliad, uh, Eurypolis. And so, it's during this time that Achilles' birth name, Ligeron, clear voice, is changed to Achilles, the Greek. It comes from a Greek word, Akko, the, the Greek. Well, when we talk about Odysseus, we'll talk a little bit about what we think his name means. We don't necessarily know where his name came from. Some people think the slight east. In any case, uh, just a couple stories in the mythology about Achilles. 
like Enkidu from Gilgamesh, the Gilgamesh uh, legend of Mesopotamia, Achilleus, when he was young, so fast that he could supposedly run down wild animals. And so one thing I want you to start thinking about when you think of Achilleus is he is so much faster, stronger, and better a fighter than everybody around him that they stand no chance against him. He's like LeBron James plus Michael Jordan plus Bill Gates of whatever he does. And, like, it's not just my opinion. He stands head and shoulders above everybody. In fact, when we first meet him, and it'll be in Book 9 when he tells us this, we'll find out that he actually is responsible for sacking 23 cities, for defeating 23 cities around Troy. And so he is nearly invincible in Homer. He is undefeated, and everybody is terrified of him who fights against him. In fact, Hector refuses even to stand against him. He tried to once and almost died, had to run away from Achilleus. In fact, the Trojans will not meet the Achaeans in open combat at this point because of how terrifying and how scary and how powerful Achilleus is. So he gets major respect on the battlefield. would be a real bummer if the Achaeans made some mistake that kept Achilleus from fighting, if they had a contract dispute with him and he wouldn't go back onto the field be a really bad day for the Achaeans. They'd have to see what they were without him, which they don't have to see for the first nine years of the war. But they might have to see for the next few weeks. They might have to see for the next few weeks. All right, good. Now, before the Trojan War began, we've talked a little bit about the causes of the Trojan War, the apple of Eris, Paris, Helen, and his abduction of her. Well, after Helen was abducted and Agamemnon put out the call, to unite the ranks of the Achaeans and to bring them all to Alice and to go across the Aegean to Troy. Well, Thetis, Achilleus' mother, got wind of this. Now, she, as a goddess, knows that Achilleus has two possible fates. Those two possible fates are these. One, he will live a long life, but he will have no glory. He will die without glory, but he gets to live to be old. That's one way to live. Well, there's another way to live for him, too. He will live a very short life, but he will be covered in eternal glory. You might think that those are two different ways of looking at life for the ancient Greeks. Now, I'll tell you one thing. The first way of life was very uncommon because uh, even down to the time of Athens, it would often be the case that the male Greek warriors would fight every single year of their lives. Very much like the Vikings who fight in the springs many centuries later, about a thousand years later. And so... Did a lot of Greek men live to be old? No, because they got cut down during war. You know, all you have to do is fight enough battles. Eventually, some spear, some sword, some uh, chariot wheel, or some uh, bow or arrow, excuse me, probably not the bow, hopefully not the bow, is going to take you out. Um, so to live a long, peaceful life might not have actually been that bad an option to them. But really, the ethos, the spirit of the Greeks was a warrior spirit. And so, when Thetis hears that there's going to be a war, what does she assume her son is going to want to do? Being himself a very powerful and strapping young man. Yes. Go to war. But if he goes to war, what does she know is going to happen to him? Yes. He'll die. He will die young. He will die at that war. And then she, an immortal goddess, will have all eternity to what him? Yes. Mourn. To mourn him. Which will be very sad. Actually, I, I do think that if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the relationship between Aragorn and Arwen, is, and what happens after Aragorn dies, 
uh, if you read the very back of The Return of the King, is some version of what Thetis has to go through. Basically, it's an immortal who marries a mortal man, and then she like cries so much she turns to stone afterwards. And Actually, there is a Greek parallel to that. There is a, a woman named Niobe who loses her 14 children all at once, and then her husband, terribly, and then she turns into a rock face with water coming out of her eyes and becomes a waterfall, because essentially she's crying forever afterwards. Aren't these stories neat? Yes, I know, I know. They're, they're very happy stories, these great stories. Uh, in great books, one, also uh, next year I'll tell you some pretty happy stories too when we go down into the inferno. Uh, there are good stories too, I promise, I promise. But we, you know, you start with night and then you get to day. Who understands that metaphor? What starts in darkness ends in light. In any case, in any case, okay. So, what is Thetis to do? Her young son is definitely the person that the Achaeans want most to fight for them. He is the most eligible fighter. He is the one that in contract negotiations today in the NFL would get the biggest contract and who agents and general managers and coaches would put up with the most nonsense from. In fact, they will have to. Uh, the, their equivalents, essentially, will have to during the Achaean War. Well, so... We know something about moms. Whether they be mortal or immortal moms, what do they like to do to you? Or what do they do to you no matter what, and you want it less than anything, especially because you're in high school, yes? Baby you. Baby you? That's good, that's good. What about embarrass you? Well, I'll tell you a story that will perhaps make it so that you can never feel quite as embarrassed by your parents ever again. Achilleus, strongest Achaean ever to have existed except for one, Heracles, the greatest hero ever to have existed, son of Zeus, has his mom come up to him and say, Honey, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't go to war, and Odysseus and the Achaeans are going to come find you and make you go to the war, so we need to hide you. Not only do we need to hide you, we need to hide you in the most embarrassing possible way, the most emasculating, feminizing sort of way. In fact, Achilleus, we're going to dress you as a girl. We're going to dress you as a girl, and I'll show you several pictures and art of Achilles dressed as a girl, because apparently this caught the Western imagination for 3,000 years. We were all just like this big macho guy having to dress as a, girl, as a girl. You might imagine like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Hulk Hogan dressed as a girl, though actually Achilles is so beautiful that he pulls it off. Isn't that incredible? Um, yeah, I know. I know, I know. You're like, how couldn't you tell? You know, again, with mythology, you have to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And so, she says, you need to dress as a girl. He argues with her in this work called Post-America, but eventually he gives in because she's mom. And if, if Achilles is anything, he is a mama's boy. He will, we will see him interact with his mother several times during the course of the Iliad, even though she is not as present in his life as he probably would have liked. Remember, he grows up uh, essentially without a mother because his mother left his Father, they do seem to have uh, uh, a fairly close relationship for being God and mortal. We won't see the same sort of thing with Aeneas and Aphrodite. So, this is what we need to know. Achilles is asked to dress as a girl. He is then sent to an island called Skyros. On that island of Skyros, King Lycomedes reigns. While he is there at Skyros, apparently one of King Lycomedes' daughters finds him to be a rather attractive young lady. Make sure you're right. 
Her name is Dei Damea, if you were having trouble pronouncing her name. Now, we don't know exactly what happens and how it goes down, but we do know that she finds him attractive, and then she is pregnant, and then she, after he leaves for Troy, will have his son named Pyrrhus. Uh, or Neoptolemus. Neoptolemus is his actual name. He's sometimes called Pyrrhus uh, because the word Pyrrhus in Greek means fiery or red. He's a redhead. Just like Menelaus is a redhead. And so if you were trying to imagine what color hair these people had, it's red. In fact, something kind of interesting about these stories is they leave a lot of the physical attributes of their characters up to your imagination. Something in modern novels is that one of the first things you get when you meet characters is how they're dressed, how they look, how tall they are. Even uh, even mentions of their posture, so you have a really good idea. You're going to get almost none of that with these characters. You'll hear that Odysseus has wide shoulders. You'll hear that uh, uh, that Aeus Greater is very tall. You'll hear that Agamemnon looks very kingly. What does that even mean? I don't even know. And you'll hear that Achilles is very handsome, and actually the most physical description you'll get is about the ugliest you can. Rounded shoulders, pointed head, bald tuft, tufts of hair on his head, and a hunchback. Oh, and knobby knees. And he can never stop talking. His name is Thersites of the Endless Speech. That's literally what he's called. Thersites of the Endless Speech. He's described by uh, Homer as the worst of the Achaeans, and he's also Achilleus's and Odysseus's least favorite. And if they're the best Achaeans for intelligence and for strength, what does that tell you about the fact, what does that tell you about Thersites, that he's their least favorite person? That he definitely is at least uh, amongst the worst of the Achaeans. So, Achilles. Now, if this ruse were successful, we wouldn't have the Iliad as we have it now. So obviously it wasn't. So what happens? Well, Odysseus, and sometimes by account Odysseus and Diomedes, get wind that something kind of weird is happening over at Skyros, that Achilles has disappeared, and now all of a sudden there's this new very dynamic princess hanging out in Skyros. Sort of an odd confluence of events. Uh, uh, the sort of coincidence you might raise your eyebrow at. And if you're looking for Achilles, then you're looking for any anomalous situation somewhere. And so Odysseus and Diomedes, in pursuit of Achilles and essentially instant victory at Troy, which is what they're imagining, get Achilles, win at Troy, likely that you'll become rich and not die. You really want Achilles. Well, they go to Skyros. Supposedly Odysseus sort of looks over all the women there, and he kind of notices there's one thing. There's one of them. She's pretty pretty too, but she, you know, man, her shoulder's a little wider, seems to have sort of an Adam's apple, might have sort of a four o'clock shadow slightly. <laughs> he just notices that something's up. And he's like, I don't know, I don't know. I just, something's not quite right here. I, I, I'm suspecting that perhaps... I'm not seeing the full situation. So he thinks, hmm, if Achilles were hiding here and I couldn't identify him, how could I get him to identify himself? Well, he comes up with a very, very clever plan, and Odysseus is the man who comes up with clever plans. And this is the key to his success. You might say this is the key to any person's success, your ability to come up with plans you can successfully execute. He thinks, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put out a bunch of gifts for the daughters. Roses, rings and jewelry, necklaces, beautiful, beautiful dresses, uh, beautiful cauldrons as well, the sorts of things that these ladies would love. And cauldrons were cooking at that time. 
But he also puts a shield and a sword. Not something that the princesses of the court of Skyros would or the court of Lycomedes would necessarily want. He then has the trumpeteers on the battlements blow their trumpets. Well, when they blow their trumpets, that means that they've seen an enemy ship. That means an enemy is coming. That means that the men need to do what? Arm for battle. Get ready to fight. To defend what's theirs. To defend their treasures, their homes, their mothers, their wives, their daughters, their sons. Achilleus' battle instincts kick in. Even though he's dressed as a woman, he jumps up and grabs either the spear or the sword or the shield immediately and reveals himself for what he is. Even though his mother tries to cover up his true nature, tries to keep him from his destiny, does his true nature still show forth? Does he still reach out for his destiny? Yes. And this is another very interesting story. Just as we can't escape death as mortals, neither can we deny who we really are. Even if it would be in our best interest for longevity. And so a question I might ask to you is, should Achilles have stayed hidden? Should he have gone to fight? And I suppose I'll have to leave you with that question tonight.